Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy tonight at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hi, listeners. Addison here, series producer for Detectives Don't Sleep. We hope you've enjoyed our special three-parter on Arthur Brand's incredible journey recovering Yosef Torak's striding horses. Now, on this show, we cover cases throughout history, and we don't often get the opportunity to speak with the actual detectives behind the cases we bring to life. But today, we have the distinct honor of sitting down with world-renowned art detective, the real Indiana Jones himself, Mr. Arthur Brand. Arthur, welcome to the show. Thank you for inviting me. So I suppose that my first question for you is, how did you get to do what you do now? How does one become an art detective? Yeah, I, I don't think it's it's a real job, you know. Um, you can't go to university and and uh, choose art detective. So it went a bit strange. I went to college or university, of course, but uh, it wasn't that big of a success. So I failed there. And then at a certain time, you start to think, what should I do, you know? And um, I was already a small collector uh, during my student years. I started to collect ancient coins, Roman and Greek coins. And then one day I read that these coins are also forged. So you can buy a fake one. So that interested me, you know, because I didn't want to buy fake coins. And then I started to read about forgeries. And then somewhere in some article, it was mentioned that 30%, 3-0 of the art market is fake. Can you imagine? 30% of everything you buy on eBay, even at auction houses, or even in museums, you know, it's it's fake. So that's, that started to interest me. I thought, how can it be? It's not only a financial loss if you buy something uh, for a lot of money that turns out to be fake, but it's also, you know, like, it's it's disturbing history. If 30% of all the artifacts, all the paintings, etc., you look at is fake and you get the wrong impression of history. And then I realized that nobody wanted to talk about this topic. It's not like the art world is, is putting this out, you know, they are not talking about it. And then I read that we are talking here about a market, the, the art crime market worth like 8 billion euros. So then I started to, to read about it. And there was not much, but there, there was this Dutch man called Michel van Rijn. It's quite a character. Michel van Rijn, uh, according to Scotland Yard, was at the time, we are talking here about the 90s, he was responsible for 90% of all the art crimes in the art world. And he wanted us to believe that he was also responsible for the other 10%. <laughs> so that shows a bit what kind of character he is, you know. Normally, criminal denies everything, but Michel van Rijn even wanted us to believe that the things he didn't do, that even that he did. So um, I wrote him an email and uh, he invited me over to London. And I went there and uh, I stayed there for three, four days. I met people from the FBI, Scotland Yard, forgers, you know, people with guns. And I was sitting there and I thought, oh my God, this is so great. This is Michel Varane really was a, a mix of, of Indiana Jones, uh, Dan Brown, um, 
James Bond. It was crazy. Those were crazy times. So he introduced me to his his circle um, of um, what what should I say uh, criminals and and the good guys because at the time that I met him he had changed sides. The criminal artwork had become dangerous. Uh, Misha was shot at. Um, there was a lot at stake, a lot of money. So he flipped sides. He started to attack his former colleagues. And he had a website in which he showed how much wrongdoing there was in the art world. That people, when they look at the art world, they say they see decent people, royals, famous people, um, and they see the most beautiful art. But behind the scenes, you know, it's just a mess. And that it's a mess because it's about money, a mm -hmm. lot of money. So uh, Michel Verein introduced me into his world and I loved it so much that I thought I don't have, I didn't finish my, my university. So it's either this or yeah, what else? And it was so much fun. So I stayed there and after a couple of years, I started for my own and uh, people started to call me an art detective. Well, that's fascinating. And of course, we know Michelle Van Ryn from the episode because he's the one that turned you on to the Hitler's horses cases. I believe you describe him as the angel, an angel and a devil in one person and yeah. as a as a mentor to you as well. And it's it's fascinating because, Arthur, you have a habit of making friends with people that you've caught. Um, I'm thinking of your friend Octave, uh, yeah. who you've who you've worked with in the past. Can you tell me a bit? about that relationship how does how does that work well in in my job you you chase forgers you chase uh, museum thieves you chase people who have done bad things uh, i have to deal also with with high end criminals uh, drug lords um, the mafia the ira but the people who steal you know first of all they are not killers Oki, for example, Oki is a famous guy. He stole two Van Goghs in 2002 from the Van Gogh Museum in the Netherlands. And he sold them to a mafia boss, one of the highest mafia bosses in Italy, Rafael Imperiale. And Imperiale used these paintings 14 years later to make a deal with the Justice Department in Italy. He said, look, instead of 20 years, give me eight years and you get your paintings back. <laughs> so that's the deal he made, this big mafia boss. So... I chased Oki for, for over 10 years. He always says in every interview, he never noticed. So that's quite an insult. But, you know, first of all, they are not killers. They are not doing drugs. They are ordinary thieves. And it's in my field, it's, it's nothing personal. You know, I want to have these paintings back or whatever they have stolen. But anyway, Octave, of course, although he was my arch enemy, and not only Octave, there are many more people, we do play in the same stadium. You know, it's like um, Liverpool, Manchester United. They hate each other, but they need each other to make this game. So one day I was walking down the street and I spotted Octave on the other side. He spotted me too. So we did a stare down. That's something in the criminal world. You stop and you stare at each other and the first to leave has lost. So we were staring at each other from 20 meters apart, like uh, five minutes. And then I stepped over and I said, uh, okay, let's have a drink. So I could write a book about this first meeting, you know, and Oki, of course, first, you know, he didn't want to talk to me. And, uh, but in the end, he started to tell his stories. I started to tell my stories. And many of these stories we have in common because he stole it. I have to recover it. And Oki has since um, retired. 
Uh, he has done time in jail. He never killed anybody. He never molested anybody. He has done his time. And now he helps me to track down stolen art. And once he said in front of a live to the audience, he said, people, imagine Arthur turned me over to his side. Imagine if I had turned him over to my side, we would be so rich. <laughs> so now he's helping me. And I have this with, with many other people. Um, Stephen, for example, the main character in my book, you know, after, after this story, after all these statues were confiscated by the police, I called him and I said, let's sit together and have a beer. You know, we are both part of this big story. And he said, well, maybe one day. We still didn't drink that beer, but uh, someday we will. You know, it's, I think that's also a bit of my power. You know, I don't have many talents. I'm just an ordinary guy. Um, maybe one of my talents is that these people understand that I'm not really after them. You know, I'm after the stolen piece and I'm, I'm no, I know my, my job. I know what I'm talking about. And they, of course, want to hear too what, what I have to tell them, uh, how I track them down, for example. So, uh, yeah, it's, it's never anything personal. And, you know, the world is already such a, sometimes a bad place. And uh, why make it worse? You know, I do my job. These thieves do their job. But you still can have a drink. That's my opinion. Yeah, exactly. That's a really interesting perspective on this. Um, but you mentioned Stephen, and I did want to ask you a little bit about Stephen. Obviously, you have this amazing dramatic moment in Hitler's Horses that we also cover in the podcast, where you wear a concealed camera and and film him. And I was just wondering, how were, how did you feel in that moment? Uh, this this completely James Bond moment. How did you feel? Were you nervous? Do you get nervous? Believe me, it was far from James Bond, you know. Everything <laughs> went wrong. I, I don't even know how to charge up a battery, you know. But so my friends did that for me. And I was sitting there in this bar. And you must understand Stephen. Stephen, like I also write in my book, he said, uh, Arthur, I work with billionaires. Who are you? You know, he was a bit downgrading me. So I already thought, you know, I'm going to get you. So I was sitting there with my secret camera and the first thing he said, Arthur, you was on Steven Lives in Belgium. You were on Belgium television last year wearing a secret camera. You're not filming me right now, do you? So you sit there and you think, oh my God. So what can you do? Most people would say, no, 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 no. I'm not filming you or they would start to sweat, you know, but I stayed calm and I said, look, Stephen, if you don't trust me, let's go down to the toilet and you can search me. That's the best thing you can do, you know, because then he thought, I'm not going with him in a toilet. What will people think, you know, but he offered it. So probably he's not wearing anything. So that was my my trick and he fell for it. So um, that's how I escaped. If he would have said, yeah, let's go to the toilets, you know. This whole thing, there wouldn't have been a book. Yeah, that's really interesting. But Stephen, he seems to indicate to you that the people he's dealing with are dangerous. I believe he says that they're capable of anything. And and you've just said that these people aren't killers. They're they're just thieves. But it, it seems to me that you do come across some dangerous people and that you anger some dangerous groups. Well, so I'm... I'm wondering, you know, how often do you feel like in these investigations, 
that your life is in danger. Well, yeah, not, not that often, not that often. Um, the first time I had to to deal with with criminals because there is there is a difference. The thieves are normally not that dangerous, you know. They just steal a painting, but in many cases they sell it to high end criminals like drug lords, to mm-hmm. mafia bosses like Octave did. These are dangerous people. But then again, um, you know, I'm not. I'm just chasing a stolen piece of art, and sometimes I see them sitting in front of me thinking shall we shoot him sometimes i just see it in their eyes because he's so annoying this dutch guy but then i see them deliberating and you see them think well it's just a painting you know we better not shoot him we end up in jail for 20 years but if i would for example um, annoy these people by asking questions about people they have killed or or their drug deals I would be a, a dangerous for them because then I'm I'm really attacking them in their earnings, you know, but I'm just asking about stupid paintings. But in this case, so normally the people I have to deal with are, are dangerous, but you, they are not really threatening me. The first time I met these people, I was sitting, you know, somewhere at the street uh, on a terrace with them drinking a beer. And I always... In the beginning, I was a bit afraid because, you know, these are hardened criminals. And then I started to realize that these people are more afraid for me than I was for him. Because they always think, they still think that wherever I am, there are some policemen hiding behind a tree because they know I always work with the police. There is never a policeman behind a tree, but they always think that wherever I am, the police is there. So they start threatening, you know. So when I realize that they are more afraid of me than I'm from them, uh, since then I'm quite cool. In this case of Hitler's horses, it's a bit different because quite soon we realized that we had to deal in this case with former Nazis, neo-Nazis, former spies for the Stasi, the, the East German secret service. And we we discovered that there was an, an ongoing uh, a business of Nazi memorabilia being sold to collectors. And this is a multi-million dollar, a multi-million euro business. So it's not like these people like it when I'm sticking my nose in, into their business. And of course, you know, we are talking here about a regime, the Nazis, who have killed tens of millions of people. So one more who would care, you know. So... um Yes, I have been warned by my friends in the German police. Uh, be careful because we are dealing with dangerous people. Very dangerous people, it appears. And I mean, you say they're not going to shoot you over just a painting, but you're risking your life for paintings, uh, Picasso's, priceless pieces of art, Josef Torak's horses. So what motivates you to go up against these pretty scary figures for these pieces of art? Well, you know, I think I have in common with many people, probably many listeners too. You know, two of my hobbies are, are crime, true crime. You know, the be- the best-selling books are true crime. And I love history, archaeology, art. So uh, most people do, you know, and the field I'm working in, these two things come together, art and crime. And... You know, these adventures are quite interesting. For example, a Picasso or the Ring of Oscar Wilde, which I recovered. All these pieces are 
very famous. People like them. There is a story attached to it. And then the crime steps in. The piece is stolen and it's lost. People think it might be lost forever because in many cases, stolen art is being destroyed. Once the thieves discover that it's very hard to sell. So when you finally recover, for example, a Picasso after it has been lost for 20 years, one of Pablo Picasso's most favorite paintings, he kept this, this, uh, this painting till he died, you know, he didn't even sign it because why should you sign a painting if you don't, if you do not sell it? So if you recover such a Picasso after 20 years worth 70 million, seven zero, and you have it one night on your wall, you know, I didn't tell the police I had recovered it. I said, no, no, tomorrow. So I kept it on my wall. Uh, I called Oki, by the way, just to tease him. You know, I said, you have no idea what's on my wall. So uh, I told him he was quiet for, for a minute. And then he said, is there any chance you'll leave your home tonight? And I said, no way, Oki. I have a big wooden stick here. And if you come in. Uh... But anyway, you know, it's, it's, it's the hunt. It's trying to, to crack a mystery after so many years. Michel van Rijn um, once said to me, Arthur, do you still go to the movie? And I said, no. And he said, I neither. And you know why it is? I said, I have no idea. He said, you know, some of these stories you are in, or he was in, sometimes it's, it's stranger than fiction, you know? I was there when the Gospel of Judas was recovered after 2,000 years. You know, it was like Dan Brown in real. The Gospel of Judas was forbidden by the church 2,000 years ago. They should all have been destroyed, all copies. One, one piece was uh, kept in a cave in Egypt and it was recovered like 50 years ago, but sold on the black market. And Michel van Rijn discovered that. So um, that was my first case with him, you know. It was a real Dan Brown story. When I told it at a birthday party, they didn't believe me until it made headlines on CNN. They called me and they said, was this this story you were talking about? And I said, yes, this was a story. So, you know, art and crime, two of my hobbies. And luckily they come together in my job. So what more can one ask for? American Criminal is a new true crime podcast from the studio behind American Scandal and American History Tellers. Every week, you'll fall deeper into the riveting stories of the country's most clever, craven, and cruel criminals. Fraud, theft, murder, and worse. Whatever the case, whoever the criminal, you don't know the whole story until now. The debut season tackles one of the most sensational cases of the 20th century, the Menendez murders. In 1989, young Lyle and Eric Menendez brutally shot their own parents. Prosecutors and the press said it was a multi-million dollar inheritance that led two greedy rich kids to murder. But the picture-perfect facade this Hollywood family built hid troubling abuse. Could these teenagers have been driven to kill? Or was it even in self-defense? Listen now. Go to AmericanCriminal.com or search for and follow American Criminal wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, listeners. Did you know you can listen to new episodes of Detectives Don't Sleep a week early by subscribing to Noiser Plus? For more information, head to Noiser.com or click the link in the episode description. You've been talking about your stranger than fiction adventures that you live. And I think that our audience would like to hear a couple more stories. Obviously, Hitler's Horses is one of your biggest cases, but it's certainly not 
the only big case that you've covered. And one case that I'd like to ask you about is your recent recovery of the blood of Jesus relic. Could you tell us a little bit about that? Okay. So according to tradition, when Jesus was hanging at the cross, some people collected some of his blood drops in a grill. And that was the grill that was used on the day before during the Last Supper, which we now know as the Holy Grail, which people are still searching for. The, the King Arthur legends, the Crusaders who were searching for it, the Da Vinci Code by Dan Brown. So these blood drops, according to tradition, were collected. A thousand years ago, um, some of the, these blood drops ended up in France and they built a cathedral around them. And during thousand years, people went there to pray in front of the blood drops of Jesus. You know, the, the holiest of holies of the Catholic Church. Whether you believe it or not, that's your own opinion, you know, but it's, it's the story. And then it was stolen last year in June by some thieves. It was quite big news, you know, the blood of Jesus stolen. And um, one day then, a few weeks later, I got a message through secured mail. I think it was a woman. And she wrote to me, listen, Mr. Brandt, I know you from television. We have a problem here. Some friends of mine stole something they thought was a golden basket. But it's not gold. It's, it's you know, it's, it's gilded. So we cannot melt it down. And the worst is, it turns out that it contains the blood of Jesus. And I know that criminals, even if they are not religious, they are superstitious. I know criminals like Oki, you know, they steal everything except from a church. They would never steal one euro from a church. It's bad luck, you know, whether you're a believer or not. So they said, we try to return it to the church, but it's guarded, you know, you have cameras everywhere there. So what is going to be, Mr. Brand? Either we bring it to your home, put it in your front door, or we destroy it. So what did I say? I said, of course, you know, this is my address. Be my guest. So they said, well, one of these weeks, stay at home because we might ring at your doorbell. So I had to stay at home. I thought for two, three weeks, you know, I couldn't even leave. I, I called friends to, to buy the groceries for me because you don't want to miss his, uh, Jesus' blood on your doorstep. And then one night they rang the bell. I thought, is this a joke or is this real? And then I looked outside in the dark from a balcony and I saw a box there. So I, I looked to the left and to the right. I saw nobody, it was dark. I ran down the stairs. I saw the box, took it upstairs, you know, my heart beating. And I opened the box and there it was, the gilded box, gold box, with the blood drops of Jesus. A very old tale. Of, of, of medieval Europe, Christianity, King Arthur, um, the Crusaders. So it was standing there and, you know, I'm a Catholic, so for me it meant a, a lot. Even if you don't believe that these are the blood drops of Jesus, millions of people did believe it the last thousand years. People went walking thousand years ago for 500 miles just to go there to, to pray for their sons and daughters, uh, the sons who went to war or the daughters who, who fell ill, you know, they were sitting there praying in front of this. So it was a religious experience, even if I wouldn't have been religious, you know, it's still such an important piece. So um, every year there is still a procession 
Last year there wasn't because the blood was stolen. So this year there will be another procession for all the believers. Uh, it will be carried outside of the church through to the town and uh, I'm invited to be there. History is so interesting. And especially when there are mysteries involved and on, on top of that, if something is stolen and disappears, you know, you have mystery on mystery on mystery. And to, to dig into those cases, you know, it's, um, it's a great thing. But I also have to add that I have a journalist now who follows me, an English journalist. And he said, Arthur, when I first heard about your job, I thought, oh my God, this must be the, the greatest job in the world. But now that I follow you, I know that it's mostly blood, sweat and tears. So you just mentioned the blood, sweat and tears behind your investigation. And we see a lot of that in Hitler's horses. I'm thinking when you're at the archives in Berlin and you make that incredible discovery with the photograph. How did you feel when you saw that photograph in the archives for the first time? Well, I, I did five studies at university and I didn't end one of them. So one day I had to confront my <laughs> parents and tell them that I was quite a quitter. This strange thing happened when I started my job. You know, I don't quit. I quit with everything except my job. Um, and I think it's logical. If you invested like two, three years in a case, uh, you don't want to give up. And everybody says, forget about it. This painting or these statues don't exist anymore. But I keep on going. And then finally, when there is a, a breakthrough in such a case, like uh, like you just said, these these pictures, it's like, you know... I, I can't describe. It's like you are being lifted from the ground. Um, when you, for example, if a piece is stolen and you you get a, a picture, um, a proof of life picture, for example, the Picasso or the Ring of Oscar Wilde, you know, it's 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 breathtaking because you you spend so much time in it um, without hoping it you would succeed, but you know, of course, at that moment, tomorrow it starts. One week. The whole world is calling you and people will react to it. So um, I think that's why I keep on going. But these moments, these are crucial moments. Every time, also with Hitler's horses, I, I recall that when we recovered them, uh, it was such a difficult journey. I promised myself and everybody around me, after this case, I stop. I'm going to do something else because it's not good for your health, you know. So... The Monday after I recovered Hitler's horses, I went on my bicycle to buy something in the rain and I got a call from a museum in the Netherlands. And they say, we have a lead to our stolen paintings. And it turned out to be in the Ukraine. These paintings were in the hands of, of warlords in the Ukraine at the time. And they asked me, do you want to go? And I said, of course I go. So every time I promised myself after every uh, recovery, this is it, uh, Arthur, get a real job, you know, um, do something useful with your life, at least uh, less nerve-breaking. But then again, you know, there is this adrenaline um, and after two weeks I get bored and I think, where's the next case? And uh, so uh, probably I will do this till the day I die.
So we've just talked about how it feels when you get a big breakthrough during an investigation. But now I want to talk about what it's like when things go a bit sideways for you, moments when your life is potentially in danger. I'm thinking specifically of your interaction with the mysterious Dr. Ananova, where you essentially get kidnapped and brought to an underground parking lot. Can you walk us through that interaction? You know, you must understand in my job, people don't invite me normally to a restaurant. I have to deal with criminals, people with mysteries, you know, with secrets. Um, sometimes, you know, th there might even be spies. The people I have to deal with, sometimes it's a mafia boss, sometimes it's a former spy or a thief on the run, a criminal on the run being searched by Interpol. You know, when you meet these people, normally it's in a wood, wooden area or somewhere in a parking garage. So for me, it's the usual stuff. But I hadn't suspected to have this encounter. I knew that there was a big market. What I describe in my book is that, as we all know, the Russians took half Germany. You know, after the war, they called it the DDR. But of course, it was a satellite state of the Russians, the communist Eastern Germany. What we did find out and what is now common knowledge is that although the communists had fought the Nazis, they had a lot of stuff belonging to the Nazis, big statues, art, etc. And the communists always had a shortage of money. So they built some companies which secretly um, sold these confiscated Nazi art, which they had in their possession, to collectors in the West, even to auction houses. But it didn't look well, you know, communists selling Nazi art. So it was quite a big secret. There have been written books about it now. So it was a big, a big business. And a lot of people were involved. And I, I managed to, to meet one person and she went under the nickname Dr. Ahnenerbe. And I got her name through a neo-Nazi. You know, these, they are not in the, in, the, in the telephone book, you know. You cannot just look them up and call them. So you leave your name at some place and then you are being contacted. And in some cases, a car stops next to you and they say, uh, I am this person you're looking for, get in. And that's how it happened. Yeah, and it's fascinating too, because you talk a lot about the importance of being honest with the people that you're dealing with, but you have to use deception sometimes. You're an extremely well-known figure in the world of art smuggling and art theft. And in the case of Dr. Ananova, you did use deception, but she outed you in the uh, end. Every time I use deception, you know, I once went into the British Museum to cover a story with a Turkish journalist, and I presented myself as Dr. Something from South Africa. And we had this interview, and after two hours, the guy in the British Museum said, uh, it was nice to talk to you, Mr. Brand. And I said, so you knew from... He said, of course I know you, you idiot. So every time I go undercover, it falls apart. So... I normally don't do that anymore. I, I don't like it, you know, because it's dangerous. If I go to a mafia boss and I said, I'm Mr. Van Dyke from South Africa, and they found out I'm not, they might shoot me. So you better be honest. And why shouldn't you, you know? I'm just there to, to get a stolen painting back. In this case of Hitler's horses, I had to use some deception because the horses wouldn't come back voluntarily. We had to deal here with former spies, with neo-Nazis, with old Nazis, with dangerous people. 
Don't forget, this is important, what I mentioned now, right extremism, neo-Nazis are still very active in Germany. They have killed people in the last decade. They have put bombs. Just a few months ago, 30 people, something 30 plus people were arrested in Germany. High-end people, some duke was involved. They wanted to throw over the government. I don't know if you read about that, but there was almost a coup d'etat in Germany. Can you believe that? So the people we had to deal with were, were potentially dangerous. And they weren't about to give up the horses, you know, voluntarily. So we had to use deception. But it's not something I like to do because, first of all, I'm too stupid for it. Uh, and second, it, it's dangerous. You know, you, you better say who you are so there are no surprises. But yeah. Yeah, in this case, it was uh, I had to do it. I felt yeah. through like like five minutes, you know, and um, it's always so embarrassing when they they <laughs> they find out who I am, you know. It's you look like an idiot, like a small child uh, stealing a, a biscuit, you know. Do you know anything more about Dr. Anna Nerba? Can you? I know she us? died. I know she died a lot two years ago. I do know her real name now, which I cannot mention because uh, I I know she died. Um, she was just one of many former East German spies who worked for this big business of selling art from East Germany to the West. That brings us nicely to Gudrun Borvich and Silent Assistance, who, which I personally did not even know was an organization that existed until reading your book and covering this story. Can you tell us a little bit about Silent Assistance? and your encounter with Gudrun Borvich. Yeah, Silent Assistance. We all know um, these stories from Frederick Forsyth, uh, Operation Odessa. At the end of the war, a lot of the Nazis wanted to escape. They thought, if we stay, we're going to be executed. So they tried to escape to South America, to Egypt, and they managed to make groups who helped these people. Um, we all know that Eichmann, for example, escaped to, to Argentina. Uh, Mengele escaped uh, to Argentina. So you had these groups. But Odessa, the, the group in, in the book of Frederick Forsyth, doesn't exist. There is another group that is real, and that's called Silent Assistant. It was formed at the end of the war. We know about their existence because in the 90s, they uh, went public because they wanted to have tax beneficiaries. So they went public. And this is a group of mainly old Nazis who helped since the war, helped Nazis to get out of hands of justice. They helped them to, to hide. They helped them to get over borders. And whenever one got caught, they paid the lawyers. And Silence Assistance, the, the main character in this organization is Gudrun Buritz. She passed away two years ago. And Gudrun Burwitz, nobody heard about Gudrun Burwitz, but that's not her maiden name. Her maiden name is Gudrun Himmler. She was the daughter of Heinrich Himmler, the head of the SS. And Gudrun was heading this organization. And this organization is quite interesting because, as we have talked before, neo-Nazis are quite a big group in Germany. They got training from the old Nazis with the help of silent assistants. Uh, Gudrun Burwitz sometimes showed up at these meetings. They were, of course, followed by the Secret Service in Germany who wanted to know who was there. 
we had three suspects. The German police and myself, we had three suspects. Uh, Flick, Wolf and Bodenstein. These were the three people that in the end of my book are being raided by the German police. We had these three people. But every time some of these people were somehow related to somebody in silent assistance. Bodenstein, for example, had his own organization and some of these people who belonged to his organization, a secret order, the Alexander Order, were also affiliated to silent assistance. So every time the name silent assistant popped up. So in the end, I started to believe that these horses were sold, maybe for 8 million, to gather money for silent assistance. I could never prove that. The only thing I could prove that many of the main characters in this story had somehow ties to people who are also involved in silence assistance. You know, it was also dangerous if you write such a book, you know, people could sue you. You know, I, I happened to hear other stories later on, also from the German police about connections between these people and other people, but I cannot talk about it here on the podcast, you know, because um, that's uh, for other people to do. So, uh, yeah, in the end, I go to visit her home of Gudrun. And I, I, I won't, won't tell the whole story because it's in the book, but I talk to her for a few minutes. Yeah, we cover that in the episode as well, that incredible interaction. And I believe someone told you, you know, she's a real believer and that makes her dangerous. Uh, and it was just such an interesting, tense interaction there. That brings me to, you know, it, at the end of Hitler's Horses, it, you talk about being momentarily afraid of reprisals from the neo-Nazi community um, and also maybe offending some of your Jewish clients. What what was some of the reaction you got when you did recover the horses? <laughs> it still makes me laugh, you know, that I was afraid. I, I work a lot for Jewish families who got stolen during World War II. Uh, I try to help them recover the paintings that once belonged to them, but are, you know, now hanging in museums worldwide. Um, so I have a lot of Jewish clients. So I thought, what will they think when I make headlines all over the world with, with Hitler's art, you know? But they looked it from the bright side. They said, well, you took some millions out of the hands of some people with probably Nazi sympathies. I have to be careful what I say, but you know, you know what I mean. So um, they liked it a lot. Then, of course, I was afraid for neo-Nazis. I thought, my God, they might come after me. But they were too busy with, you know, it was such a discovery. Hitler's favorite statues were still around. So they were so distracted by that that they forgot about threatening me. So that was also a lucky escape for me. So at the end of the podcast, uh, we talk about how the horses have gone on to be exhibited in the Standard Citadel. Um, and you have some interesting feelings about this. Some people say they should not be exhibited at all. You're, you said, I believe, if you want to prevent another Third Reich from happening, you have to display the artwork. So could you walk me through a little bit about your thinking on why the horses should be displayed to the public? Yeah, well, when you are a child, um, your father tells you stories about history, you know, about princesses, knights, you know, and you think history is something great. But when you grow older, you start to realize that history is 
just one big story of of poverty, of war, of diseases. You know, it's history has very dark sides. So if we decide not to show that, I don't think that's a good idea. We should learn from history. The only way we can prevent this Nazi thing to happen again is by learning from history. You should study their art. It was their most important propaganda tool. So you cannot just look the other way. Well, Arthur, I think after hearing these episodes and hearing you talk a bit about your career, some of our listeners might want to become art detectives themselves. Do you have any advice for the future art detectives out there? Yeah, what, well, what I could say, you know, sometimes people think, yes, as have I told already before, it's a lot of blood, sweat, and tears, you know, and, and I get a lot of interview requests from students who study criminology or whatever, and they say, what, what skills do I need to, to become an art detective? And uh, the first time I got this question, like 10 years ago, I started to think about myself. Why am I successful? And it's not because I have any talent at all, you know. Um, I don't have a driver's license. I cannot even change the tire of my bicycle. Um, I'm average intelligent. I do speak my languages, which is, is important. But, you know, I think if you never give up, and I think that's not only for my job, it's for every job, you know, if you... If you never give up, if you go on and on and on, you might be successful in what you do. And what's also important, which we didn't talk about, in my job, I have two restrictions. I have to obey the law. Every case I do, I do in cooperation with police, whether it's Hitler's horses or whether it's Picasso. I never do anything without permission from a prosecutor or from the police. Most cases I do have already reached the statute of limitations, so I can do whatever I want. But even then, I always ask permission from the police. You don't want to interfere with their investigations, you know. Um, so you have to obey the law. And on the other side, you have to deal with criminals. And again, we are not talking here about murder. We are talking here about getting a stolen painting back. And you have to keep your word in the underworld. These people cannot hire a lawyer and go to a judge so they solve their problems a different way. So to stay on the safe side, you have to keep your word. So what I always try to do, except for Hitler's horses, I had to use some kind of deception. What I always try to do is to, to keep my word, you know, um, just say it as it is. And I said, always cooperate uh, with the police. Yeah, great. Absolutely. And I mean, Arthur, you keep saying you don't have any talents, but I think you have a great many talents indeed, my friend. <laughs> no, you, you know, you have this, uh, this, in my series on Dutch television, there is this guy who is suspected to be a, a big mafia boss. We interview him and they ask him about me. And they say, uh, they call me the priest, you know, and this guy says, every time a criminal talks to Arthur, he starts to confess, mm. uh, like if he was a priest. <laughs> So they gave me the nickname, the priest. Once I said to my friends, if I go to, to marry one day, I have to do two parties, one for all my police friends and the next day for all my criminal informants, you know, because you cannot have them on the same day at the same spot. Um, well, Arthur, thank you so much for speaking with us today. Um, it's been such a wild ride. The story of Hitler's horses has been such a wild ride. Um, and thank you so much. And don't wait for the movie, folks, because there is going to be a movie made about it. Because as we say in the Netherlands and probably everywhere in the world, the book is always better than the movie. 
Absolutely. Definitely go check out Arthur's book, Hitler's Horses, available wherever you get your books. Thank you so much. 